Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future, let's talk present, let's talk past Fundamentals and flash Me running the flow, Stango running the show Like a young Steve Nash I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast This is the Great Point Podcast, I'm Adam Stanko Today... I want to talk about race. Now, why am I doing this? Basically, because over the past several weeks, I've just felt heartbroken. And we need to make a change. And because we need to make changes in this country, and all changes start from within, I started to ask myself, how can I make a difference? What can I do? And I realized that I did have a voice. I had a forum. That forum is this podcast. And with that forum, I wanted to inform about the experience of others. So today I'm bringing on two friends, two very close friends, two men that I respect greatly. They grew up in different areas and now live in different parts of the country. But the common bond between each of them, ironically, is probably that I played ball with them and both of them can really play. Kenny Williams went to DeMatha High School in Hyattsville, Maryland, and then moved on to Hampton University in Virginia. He worked at USA Today and ESPN. He's currently the host of the Fire Starter podcast. And Will Ray grew up in Westchester, Pennsylvania. He's like a brother to me. Played baseball and football at Kutztown University, then became an Army Ranger where he actually served an eight-month tour in Iraq. Now he's the the general manager of a, a Best Buy store in North Carolina, I'm excited to have you guys on on the show. Will, I want to start with you, but I want to get to both of you on this question. What was the racial makeup of the area that you grew up in? How would you describe that area? Um, you know, it was a it was a pretty balanced mix uh, in Westchester, Pennsylvania, about 40 miles outside of Philadelphia. Um, as you know, Adam, growing up there as well, whites, blacks, Hispanics, you know, very evenly mixed. Um, I did grow up in a what we called the borough, uh, the Westchester borough. And uh, I would say maybe, you know, the, the mix was a little heavier, you know, African-American or black um, within the borough. Um, I grew up, you know, I'm a biracial child. My mother was white, father black, uh, who, you know, my dad raised me as a single parent. So I primarily spent the majority of my time with, uh, with the black side of my family and, and thus kind of affiliate and, uh, and identify uh primarily as a, as an African-American. So, um, you know, a pretty balanced mix to answer your question, but, uh, but certainly kind of in the, the inner borough, if you will, a little heavier, um, mix of, of black residents. How about for you, Kenny? 
How would you describe the racial makeup of the area you grew up in? I was born in Washington D.C. and I grew up in a uh, in the suburb of uh, Washington D.C. called Landover in Maryland, um, which is also the hometown hometown of uh, such notable athletes and entertainers as Lynn Bias is from Landover, uh, Martin Lawrence is from here, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard is from here. Uh, it's a very heavy, um, heavy um, African American uh, population here. Uh, I would say ninety five percent. And the rest really were, you know, a couple of Asians here and there that owned stores in our neighborhoods, like cleaners and carryouts and things like that. And there's a couple Hispanics in there. But the only white people I saw were the ones I went to, uh, went to school with. I was uh, fortunate enough to go to a uh, very well-known private school um, in this uh, area. And um, yeah, other than that, I wouldn't have seen white people. Can you give me some examples of times in your life when, when you or someone close to you was mistreated simply because of the color of your skin? Oh, man. Um, I don't know how much time we had, but, uh, for example, I was assaulted by a police officer my senior year in high school, uh, pretty much for just standing, I guess, in the wrong place at the wrong time. I just was just grabbed up, spun around, punched in the face. Uh, actually, my, one of my front teeth is actually veneer. This actually happened with, uh, a week before my graduation. I'd have a, an emergency uh, dental procedure to get my teeth right so I wouldn't be looking like Snagglepuss or Leon Spinks uh, <laughs> during my graduation. Just going out and about, just having police uh, tell you, you know, I could just be going to the park, for example. I met one time, it was my junior in high school, we were at the park. Police came through. We weren't doing anything. We were just uh, bouncing uh, basketballs in the uh, parking lot of the uh, park around here. Police got out. What are y'all doing? We heard there was somebody up here doing this, doing that. Get down on the ground, gun to the back of my head. You know, all that type of stuff. Search you. You know, they didn't find anything because I wasn't doing anything and my boys weren't doing anything. It's just pretty much, I right, get up, get out of here. You know, it's never, oh, it's my bad. We got a false report. Nah, it's just, I right, get up and get out, get out of here. And I don't want to see y'all around here the rest of the night and, you know, all that type of stuff. Um, in high school, I mean, I don't want to, you know, denigrate the name of my uh, alma mater, but, uh, you know, it was a lot of racial strife um, that went on in high school between the uh, white students and the black students. Um, I don't really want to give examples, um, but it, it, it was, it was it was tense racially, and um, at times it almost kind of exploded. But I think cooler heads prevailed. But um, you know those type of things that when I think about them, they still remain fresh on my mind. Um, just because, uh, again, just because of how explosive they could have become. It just it's just one of those things that when you think back on it, you kind of wonder what if, like you know, what if I would have just punched that motherfucker, but. Because, you know, a lot of times you feel like they would have deserted for the things that they said. But ultimately, you know, you know that if it would have turned to that, more than likely you would have been at fault. You would be kicked out of school and you may not have something that you got. So sometimes you just have to always be um, mindful of the repercussions of the actions that you could take, even though you feel like you would have, you would have been 100 percent the right to do what you did. But those are just some of the things that just kind of come to mind. Will, for you? You know, I, I guess. Fortunately, I, I can say that, uh, you know, never, never got assaulted um, by police. Um, you know, growing up, we had a, you know, a, a black police chief, a, a black mayor um, in our town. Um, so, 
you know, the, the relationship with the police, albeit, you know, still a little, uh, you know, a little shaky was better than it, it sounds like it was, you know, for Kenny, but, uh, you know, definitely a lot of racial tension. You know, my dad grew up, was born in the 50s. His mother, uh, my grandmother, you know, born in the 20s. So lots of uh, lots of stories of, of injustice, not just by police, but by, by whites in general. So, you know, can certainly um, identify and empathize, you know, but for the most part, never had any personal run-ins with the police that I would, would classify as being mistreated you know I, I can certainly remember examples in high school of being called the n-word out on the football field you know weeks later i saw the kid out and retaliated and punched him in his face and got expelled from school for that you know and then obviously as you get older and uh a little more mature and potentially wiser uh you realize that you can't always react in those situations certainly not with with physical violence but uh you know as a as a 15, 16 year old kid, um, definitely was a little hot headed back then and, uh, and let some of that get the best of me. But, you know, if, uh, if I had to count the number of times I've been called the N word throughout my life, uh, I'd need to borrow, you know, both you guys fingers and toes, uh, to help me keep track. So, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly, uh, no shortage of, uh, of, you know, mistreatment based on, you know, the pigment in my skin, the the color of you know my family and friends who I associated with and uh and that's one of the big reasons I I agreed to to come on this show today to you know to to help you know just spread some of my experiences and open up that dialogue and and hopefully help people understand that you know these problems do exist they're not myths um a, a lot of people seem to think that there's not a problem and uh we couldn't be any further from the truth with that there were so many times growing up when I remember incidents that probably will that you you forgot even and and that you know brushed over probably because they weren't even as bad as as other incidents but i i was privy to them and saw it firsthand and and just couldn't get over it which had a big impact on my life not just what you were going through but other friends of ours you know we've talked about story we we you know used to double date these two girls both were white girls and um remember going to pick the girls up at their parents house We'd always swing through, have to talk to their parents before we took them out, and they really liked us. And every time you went through, Will would Will would always have the the baseball hat on, and you know to describe you to people that don't know you, your lighter skin, your green eyes, so people could mistake you and think that okay, I mean maybe um, catching in the right light, not really knowing they might think maybe you're just a darker skin white guy. Well. Turns out one day this this parent of this girl that uh, that you were dating this guy the dad really liked you and I remember then the one day we went over we used to go over there it was months on end and the one day we go over there you you took off your baseball hat like scratched your head his eyes like got huge and all of a sudden she's not allowed to to date you anymore even though he liked you before that it's it's remarkable all I think the little things that so many people out there just don't understand. And that's the biggest thing for me is, is just that total lack of understanding. The one thing that I'm really curious about though, from both of you guys perspective, and will, you talked about it, just you punched a kid that said some things that, that are possibly the worst things that you, you could possibly say. 
and then Kenny, you were talking about the idea. You you wish you you punched some of those people that that did those things. How do you guys both come to terms with that? And you talk about like the maturity and trying to balance that. Like, how much of an internal struggle is that to know that you want to retaliate, but also understanding the risk that's involved? Will you can go first? Yeah, I mean, I, I think again, it um, it. <laughs> It comes with age and, and maybe, like I said, a little more wisdom. I, I had somebody tell me not too long ago, you know, in, in order to be old and wise, you at some point have to be young and dumb. And, um, you know, I, I certainly feel like I went through a, a, a period of time where, you know, I, I could classify myself as young and dumb. And, um, you know, you, you have to realize that, you know, especially now as as an, an older adult with uh you know, with a, a nine-year-old son growing up in this world, you know, you, you can't give folks the satisfaction. Um, you know, they're looking for a reaction a lot of times. They're they're looking for that type of reaction. You know, again, just like sports, it's usually the second guy that gets the flag. You know, they never they never see the first guy. So, you know, knowing that and, again, being a little older and wiser, you know, I really try and maintain that, that calm and collectiveness. But, uh, you know, over the past uh, the past several years, really, I know you talked about as we opened the show the past few weeks. Um, I mean, I would, I would say the past several years with the rise of social media and the dissemination of information and how we're seeing, you know, innocent people lose their lives, both, uh, you know, regardless of color, innocent people lose their lives. It's infuriating, you know, and it's getting harder and harder to uh, to maintain that that level head when you see blatant injustices taking place, you know, on the streets of our, our cities across the country um, by people that are, you know, sworn to, to serve and protect us. So um, it's, it's really getting, it's really getting harder to, to explain that to our kids, um, you know, in, in terms of taking the high road and, you know, turning the other cheek. Um, so it's a, it's a daily struggle. And, uh, and like I said, even more, of, more so um, over the past several years, it, it's been a tougher struggle to uh, to really, you know, practice that. Um, you know, having served in the military for six years as a, you know, as an Army Ranger, as you mentioned, jumping out of airplanes. Um, you know, in, in the Army, you didn't have to necessarily exercise that same kind of restraint that you do as a civilian, and uh, and that's been a tough assimilation as well. Getting out of the Army in 2004, and um, you know, kind of reacclimating and reassimilating to our our country and our society as a civilian after serving in Iraq it, it's really difficult to to exercise that restraint sometimes but, uh, but fortunately you know I've been able to do that and again I I I, uh, I owe a lot of that to the fact that I'm a parent you know and I've got a greater responsibility of making sure my son grows up to be a productive citizen um and for you know and even more importantly does the right thing to, to make it home safely at night. Kenny? You know, I was fortunate enough to have a father who, um, you know, was here in my life every single day. And he would relay stories to me about him dealing with extreme um, racial strife and how he dealt with it. Um, because, you know, my dad was, um, uh, when I was, my dad was 40 years old uh, when I was born. Um, I'm almost 40 now. He was born in 1936 in uh, rural Virginia, a small town called Rapidan, Virginia. And um, he he had to deal with 
you know, the, what I call that, you know, that real authentic classic American racism, meaning, you know, he can remember his father coming upstairs and telling him and his um, brothers and sisters to, you know, get behind this little wall they had upstairs in this little small house they grew up in and get down and be quiet because the clan was literally riding by their house and he could hear the, the hoofs, you know, the horses as they rolled past and um, just some of the things that he's seen, you know, just having to, you know, ride that school bus 29 miles one way every morning to go to school, even though there was a school um, a mile from his house, um, but he couldn't go to it, you know, that type of stuff. He, you know, he grew up with that type of stuff. And, um, you know, one story he used to always relate to me how much it used to make him mad to the point that he felt like, you know, fighting back was um, his mother um, was known for, and that so small town was known for her ability to can, you know, fruit like peaches, pears, and things like that. And he would always say that the white men in that little town would come up to his house and call her his name. Her name was Hattie. They would call her Aunt Hattie. And he knew that that was, you know, code that went back to slavery times. That you would call somebody you looked at as almost like a mamie type of um, black woman. You would call her Aunt Hattie. And that he he, he said, you know, even you know, growing up, he said he could just hear that so distinct in his mind and how much he used to burn him up and how much he wanted to, you know, fight back and how much he wanted to tell him, don't disrespect, you know, my mother like that. And, you know, she took it, but his father would always tell him, like, you know, you can't just always want to fight somebody because of what they say about you or language that they use. Now, if somebody attacks you, that's one thing, but you can't get so mad about just words, because of what's the narrative going to be. Of course, you attacking somebody because of what they said, you're going to be painted in a negative light, and who knows what would have happened back then. I mean, they were still lynching black folks back then in that particular part of the country. So um, to them, it was just a matter of just trying to, you know, survive. Um, but for me personally, just hearing him relate those stories, it kind of helped me stay calm a lot of times when I knew there were situations where I would have been hundred percent the right to smack the shit out of somebody, but what would have been the the narrative? You know, somebody like myself, I'm not the biggest dude in the world, but you know, knowing growing up I had more of an athletic build. Now, I was physically bigger than many of my classmates and it wouldn't have turned out right for me. You know, I could easily see me being kicked out of school three or four times if I would have reacted the way I would have wanted wanted to react, especially in high school. But um again, just being cognizant of how the whole story could have been painted by others made me just try to, you know, just exercise a little bit of restraint. But even now, um, just seeing how the conversation is nationally about, you know, police violence and, you know, what do we, and the black community, what do we do about it? And I was listening to this debate between uh, Life Jennings and David Banner I had this town hall down in Atlanta uh, last week or two weeks ago, and, you know, I don't want to misquote Banner, but apparently his solution or one of his ideas was to make sure that Blacks uh, arm ourselves and, you know, pretty much start retaliating. And Life Jennings was like, man, you know, that's, that's stupid. You know, what's going to be the end result of it? And, um, again, going back to my dad, I remember him used to always, you know, telling me about, you know, the ideas of Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King. And, he used to always say that he understood where Malcolm X was coming from, but he said that if black people followed what the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X wanted to do um, to a T, it would pretty much be genocide. We'd be wiped out within a matter of a month. And then 
you know, remembering that and seeing this debate between them two, you know, you just kind of think about, you know, what if we did just say we just want to have a, a, a complete revolt and we're going to start a war against the police? That, again, it would be genocide, you know, and, uh, you know, it reminds me of this, uh, this lyric by Andre 3000 from Outkast. They had a song called Babylon, his second album. Um, ATL is, and we said that, you know, while we ran and raving about gats, nigga, they made them gats. They got some shit that blow out our backs from where they stay at. It made me think about what happened with uh, Chris Dorner, you know, the uh, African-American uh, police officer that went rogue out in California. And I remember them saying they were talking about using a drone to, you know, to, to, to take this dude out. They actually ended up bur- burning him alive. And then I thought about what happened recently in Dallas. You know, that dude down there went nuts, started shooting police. And they used a robot for the bomb. It's something that, you know, I've never heard any police department use ever. But mm-hmm. they say they feel like that's what they had to use to make sure this, this guy didn't uh, continue his uh, his rampage. But, you know, I don't want that, you know, that symbolism to get lost on, on black folks. Like, dude, you can sit up and talk about, you know, what you want to do and let's get our guns. Man, we got a couple AK-47s, a couple... AR-15s and things like that, man. They got drones. They got they got damn robots with with bombs on them and stuff like that. Like it would be a complete genocide if we ever decided that that's what we're going to do. It's just dumb. What we need to do is you know exercise a little bit of economic empowerment and do some things that are going to better our communities. But you know this whole thing about just you know let's get back tip the tat is just it's, it's craziness to me. But it's always been kind of craziness because, again, what's, what's the narrative going to be? We see the narrative right now. You know, Black Lives Matter is, it wants to be, you know, that people want to deem that a terrorist group, a hate group. And it couldn't be any further from the truth. But, again, how people paint the narratives. So, you know, I just spoke to someone, uh, a friend of mine basically said, hey, listen, you know, I. I I understand why people are upset. I understand why they're frustrated, but these protests aren't going to make a difference. And and if you have a protest that that holds up traffic in the middle of a major metropolitan city, then you're only going to make people more upset. You're not going to get them on your side. And I was kind of shocked at that perspective because my response was, well, how then is a protest going to enact change? If people don't know what's going on, I mean, it, it it's supposed to be uh, a disturbance. It's supposed to disrupt. But I'm curious, though, from your perspective, guys, like now you're, you're part of the workforce. You know, you're living amongst people that, you know, become customers or they become acquaintances and what have you. So, Will, on a day to day basis, how much thought do you put into how much you can change people's minds? Um. I mean, as as far as changing people's minds, um, I, I think you know that's a that's a tall order. That's a tall order to to think you're going to change someone's mind. Uh, be it a woman changing a man, a man changing a woman, uh, a white person changing a black person, or vice versa. I, I think that's a tall order. Um, I do think it's important, you know, for us as a as a society um, to be open minded, um, to be willing to listen to the other side of the story, um, to the flip side of the coin, um, and, and then hopefully be educated enough to, to accept, you know, valid points and facts, you know, but as far as me 
hoping that I, I'm going to change somebody's mind, especially you know a, a grown a grown adult that's had a life a lifetime of experiences um, and learnings. It's a uh, it, for me. It's not something I put a lot of thought into. I I, I don't embark on each day with uh, the hopes of of changing someone's mind and and and, uh, and trying to convince them that what I believe is the right way you know, or, or everything I believe is right and what they believe is wrong. Uh, again, you know, I, I try and be objective. I try and, you know, keep an open mind when I'm interacting with folks. And again, as a retail general manager, I deal with all walks of life, you know, every color, you know, every gender, you know, it's, I, I see it all. So, you know, I, I stay open-minded. I leverage the fact that, you know, I am biracial and have, you know, white and black family that I, I love dearly. You know, I spent, like I said, six years in the Army serving alongside a lot of different races and nationalities, and I draw on all those experiences on a daily basis when I'm interacting with people um, to, again, just be a decent human being, to, to understand, to, to seek to understand, and um, know that, you know, if I'm, I'm disrespectful or, or causing hurt in some way via my actions or my words, that that's, that's not right, you know, and... uh if it's pointed out to me and I'm made aware, I'm going to do everything in my power to uh, to not make that mistake again. And that's what continues to, to boggle my mind in this day and age with, you know, as much technology as we have access to, as much information as we have access to at the, the tips of our fingers, that uh, we still have seemingly so many ignorant people out here in the world that, you know, don't want to um, acknowledge, you know, just, some of the blatant injustices um, that we as a society have, have participated in, you know, be it against Native Americans, be it against African Americans, Jewish, um, Asians, you know, at, at some point in this country's history, we've we've kind of wronged just about everybody. But for some reason, again, in this day and age, we uh, we expect everybody to to turn the other cheek, get over it, and uh, you know comply and uh and I think we're we're seeing that you know we're getting to a point that uh a lot of folks are tired of just turning the other cheek and complying and we're we're trying to figure out ways to like Kenny said you know be it economically and empowering you know our own communities um or economically maybe withholding you know our our dollars um you know from businesses that that don't you know see things the way we see it et cetera. Um, we've got to start thinking a little larger scale on how, you know, our voices can be heard, especially as minorities. Kenny, I know you have been pretty vocal on, on Twitter and um, with the podcast talking about how this is a problem that everyone in America has to face. And, and you know, look, Will alluded to it, the injustice that's gone on in this country for all groups has been disgusting. And the truth of the matter is we talk about white and black now as though those lines are so clearly defined. And yet when Italians first came over, when Irish people first came over, Catholics, Jewish people, for sure, like they weren't considered, quote unquote, white. So you would think we move past that these these points. But obviously it, it's feeling like the 60s uh, all over again. But, Kenny, I, I'm curious as to if you could explain your thoughts on how, hey, this isn't just a problem that people in the black community need to be the ones addressing. This this is a problem everyone needs to to really take charge of. 
Yeah, um, again, I go back to, you know, something my dad told me, um, you know, just growing up, just the idea of racism and how to fix it. And he, you know, he used to always tell me, it's something that has stayed with me to this day, that, you know, racism is not just a black problem. It's not just a problem for Asian Americans or um, Hispanic Americans or Native Americans. Racism is an American issue. So, you know, we didn't create this problem. So how can we be charged with fixing it? You know, until white people understand that it's their duty as well to fight racism wherever it raises its ugly head, that we're never going to have any progress on it. So, you know, I've always heard, you know, people that you know, I've had these discussions with before say, well, you know, I'm not racist. But, OK, you can say you're not racist, but what about your brother-in-law? Or what about the cousin who feels comfortable sending you, you know, racist, you know, uh, jokes, you know, all the time? Do you correct that person when they do that? You know, if you're out and about and you see someone, you know, referring to somebody as a nigga, do you feel comfortable speaking up and addressing that? You know, it needs to be faced by everybody in this country, wherever we may see it. Because if we don't, it's going to continue to, you know, be, you know, what it is. And it's going to rot this this country from the inside out. And it's been doing that since uh, the beginning. And. Again, like you said, it almost seems like, again, you know, just, just from what I've read and, and seen about just how just precarious, you know, the, the racial lines were in the 60s, where it seemed like at any moment it could just explode into what seemed like it could have been a racial war. It kind of seems like that now. It seems like we're kind of teetering on that line where if there may be two or three more high profile shootings of police of unarmed black uh, black men, um and you know in retaliation there's maybe a couple more you know murders of police officers you know it seemed like this thing could really explode into something that's almost um uncontrollable and i would hate to see it get to that point but at some point white people are going to have to you know get their hands dirty and uh, i honestly think that a big step could be just how we're taught about race in in school, you know, from a, from a very young age. Um, you know, I think that if we're taught about the the origins of of, of American policing, I think that people will kind of understand. You know, there's a reason why black people are in a lot of <laughs> in a lot of parts of this country why we are just distrustful of the police. We have a reason to be. You know, the police in, in our communities, they weren't designed to protect and serve. They were designed to control minority populations. You know, in the city of St. Louis, for example, the St. Louis police were founded to protect residents from Native Americans. You know, the city was first founded. You know, many Southern police departments began slave. You would just have a basic understanding of that. And then you can just take it from how they were founded to, you know, in the early 20th century. You know, you go back to Reconstruction. Um, stories in the early 20th century, Jim Crow, civil rights era of, you know, so many police departments, police officers being complicit in lynchings, racial murders to, you know, Rodney King to uh, Amadou Diallo. Like, you know, there's a reason why, that why, you know, again, black people are distrustful of the police. It's a reason. But we have to deal with that reason. It can't just be, well, what about this what about this now let's let's look at this let's look at the reason why let's tackle that first but that has that there has to be a little bit of give on 
the part of the police, um, policymakers to just kind of, you know, have some sort of understanding. But again, I think that if we're taught a little bit better while we're young, while we're at these impressionable ages, where we actually are really taught some real history, not just this whitewashed version of history, not this version of history like I believe is in the state of Tennessee or Texas where in one of the in 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 uh in an elementary textbook, um, the Middle Passage was referred to as a mass um immigration of Africans. Like they didn't call it what it was. Like we're almost like right. we immigrated over here, like of, of our own volition, instead of calling it what it was. But, you know, if we continue to kind of be taught this and we're not really taught any real American history taught about why people feel the way that they feel at an impressionable age and then allow that to grow to where actually people can actually have real conversations in high school and college about racial dynamics in this country, then, I mean, I don't really expect a whole lot. At my age, I don't really try to go out and change people's minds, just change people's minds. I mean, people that know me know that I'm very opinionated. I know my history. And a lot of times people don't like to have conversations with me because of that. But, you know, if, you know, Adam, you, you, you know, we got to know each other pretty, pretty, pretty fast. And, you know, you were open to having about certain things. And, you know, you know, I was always open to it. I like to run my damn mouth. But, you know, from that, we gained an understanding. I think you gained a respect for me. I gained a respect for you because you were willing to actually listen. But we need to have more people who are actually willing to listen. You know, I remember um, when I was working at USA Today, a coworker of mine, because he knew I was opinionated and I would have an actor for him. This one night, I'll never forget this. And I think I've laid the story to you one time, Adam. Um, asked you how did I feel about, um, you know, in uh, in the South, a lot of school districts were renaming uh, their uh, schools in in certain towns. I think it was like in Arkansas, Louisiana. They were renaming the schools um, because the schools were named after people like, you know, after, you know, former Klan leaders, you know, uh, Woodrow Wilson, Thomas Jefferson, because Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. You know, Woodrow Wilson because he was just an avowed racist. Um, I believe still um, charged with uh, beginning the uh, or founding the Ku Klux Klan, um, and they were naming them after people like Harriet Tubman at the time. Uh, um, I think Barack Obama was uh, right on the national scene like that, um, but just after people who were seen as more tennis figures who were. You know, who could bring communities together instead of kind of, you know, tearing them apart? Because seeing that's what was happening. It was a lot of just like you know, racial strife in these particular towns over just the names of schools and you know, streets and things like that. And he asked what I thought about it. And I told him, I was like, well, you know, me personally, I know you may see Thomas Jefferson as, as um, you know, this guy who was, you know, one of the, uh, you know, the uh, forefathers of our country and all that. This guy went to the University of Virginia. Um, I know you made him as this esteemed great person, but to me, he was a slave owner. You know, he was somebody who, um, you know, depending on who you believe, you know, didn't have any problem with uh, sexually molesting his younger, uh, younger black female slaves. So to me, I don't hold him in any real high esteem whatsoever. And the guy responded to me by saying, well, you don't think he was a good slave owner. And... I looked at him and I was like, just think about, you know, I'm not going to say his name because he's still there, but, you know, uh, think about what you just said. A good slave owner. To me, that's a kid saying a good Nazi. You'll never hear somebody say, you don't think he was a good Nazi? You don't think so? But, you know, that would never really cross somebody's mind. But again, yeah, you can be a good slave owner. 
And, you know, we had a little bit of, of a conversation after that, but I pretty much cut it short. And I remember one day, like about a week later, I was leaving work and he kind of caught, caught me at the elevator and he was like, you know, can I just, you know, realize there's been a little bit of, you know, tension between us over the last week. And it was because I was, I couldn't believe somebody could actually mouth the words to say some shit like that. And he was like, you know, I, you know, we don't always agree on on everything, but I, you know, I really thought about what you said. And I was like, you know, I never really thought about it that way. You know, no one's ever really challenged me to actually, you know, think about how I see slavery and how I see things like that before. And, you know, I apologize if I offended you in any way and I completely understand where you're coming from. And I hope we, you know, we can kind of put this behind us. And I was like, you know, it's all good. But, you know, again, he had to be open to actually have that conversation, actually had to be open to kind of understand where I was coming from and just kind of see things in a, in a, in a different way. But a lot of people now, we just kind of go to our corners and we just kind of shout at each other, but nobody's really listening. We have to be willing to actually hear things that may make us uncomfortable, that may make us kind of look at our upbringing a little bit different, kind of make, kind of make us look at where we are in the world a little bit different. You know, but and I know that's uncomfortable for people, but we're not going to have any real change in this unless we're willing to actually have that like that real, real open dialogue with people actually open to hearing things. Education to me is is the biggest part. And like you said, sometimes it's not the stuff that you're you're reading in school. It's it's challenging yourself and trying to find out about other cultures and what they're really about and the background. And I've done some significant reading over the last couple of years on the idea of redlining and the prison industrial complex and why people, you know, live in the parts of the country that they do and why do young black men make up such a large portion of the of of our prison systems, you know, it's 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 not a coincidence and it's not that that we have people that are that are born as people who want to commit crimes. If you go through, you know, the lily white neighborhoods uh and start, you know, stop and frisk with the young white kids that are smoking weed, you're going to find weed and you're going to find other drugs. You're going to find pills and coke and all that stuff. And it's not happening in, in a lot of these affluent white areas. But meanwhile, it does happen where black people are living. And I think to me, that's that's a huge part of this is that, you know, we have this perception in this country as though black people are bad inherently and there's a reason why black people live where they live. You go back to the Federal Housing Administration and the redlining and all that stuff. There's a reason because people couldn't get housing. They couldn't get housing when they were trying to and and trying to make it out and and trying to to move on from being oppressed and and trying to move on for that next generation. And it, the government and a lot of governmental policies weren't allowing for that. And it's it's remarkable to me. I'm curious also because there's so many times in my life when when racial tensions were were evident on the national stage and I started to write down just obviously moments where things really started to feel like they came to a head. You hit on it with Rodney King, uh the verdict in that case, OJ Simpson verdict, LA riots, media's response to Katrina, Rush Limbaugh commenting about black quarterbacks, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown and Ferguson, the election of Obama, will how does what's going on right now feel different than all these moments in the past? Uh, I mean, it's tough. You know, I, I think, you know, trying to, uh, trying to compare, I think it's based on the simple fact that, you know, they're, they're current events. You know, when you talk about Michael Brown, when you talk about, uh, 
you know, a lot of these other recent cases, it's, it's recent. It's fresh in our memory and therefore feels potentially worse, um, for lack of a better word, than, say, you know, um, the Rodney King verdict, et cetera. But uh, the truth of the matter is, you know, they, they were all just as egregious. Um, you know, we, we've had these moments in time over the past, you know, <laughs> hundreds of years um, for the simple fact is, like we've been talking about during this discussion, no one is willing to really admit that there's a problem and, and be open to change, uh, be that policymakers and politicians, be that your, your average Joe um, white person. Um, black person as well. We we all have to be open-minded, and, and clearly that hasn't happened, you know, over the past hundred years or, or, or more, to the point where it's allowed us to to make strides, make significant strides, to get past some of these uh these racial tensions. So it's a it's a tragedy. Um, it's a tragedy, and you know I, I I'm scared for I'm scared for the next generation because it, it doesn't look like you know we're able to make the progress we need to make, you know, you've got, without getting too deep into politics, you've got, um, you know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton running right now, um, very polarizing figures, you know, and, and very checkered paths. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really tough, you know, day in, day out to, to see a brighter, a brighter future. Um, because it, it just doesn't seem like anyone is open-minded enough to admit what's wrong is wrong and what's right is right. You know, we've got Republicans pitted against Democrats and because I'm a Democrat or a Republican, I'm going to agree 100% across the board with what that Republican nominee or that Democratic nominee stands for. And uh, we're never going to make progress like that. You know, if, if we stay woke, if we, you know, do our research and educate ourselves and don't take things at face value, that's, that's when we can start to make true progress. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a spoon-fed society. We, uh, we take a lot of, of what we get at face value, be it the news, and depending on which news outlet you listen to, Fox News or CNN, you're going to get a different narrative. Um, but to, to kind of circle back and answer your question, Adam, you know, what, what feels different, you know, now versus some of these, these past events, um, I think it's just the simple fact that it's fresh and it's current and uh and social media has contributed to our ability to to access some of this uh this content much quicker. Um I think a lot of these same injustices I know a lot of these same injustices have been happening for hundreds of years. We just didn't have the vehicles to get them in front of people like we do now via Twitter, via Facebook, via Instagram, you name it. Um, so, so that's what's different, you know, our, our ability to access the, the content, um, the videos, et cetera, you know, is, is much more instantaneous now. And, um, it's appalling, you know, what we're seeing is appalling. It's wrong. And, uh, you know, we gotta, we gotta stand up and say, say it's wrong when it's wrong. And we've got too many people trying to tell us that it's not wrong. We don't have the whole story. We didn't see the whole video and that's getting old. It's getting real old real fast. And you got too many innocent people losing their lives and too many people on the other side of the coin trying to tell us that we don't know the whole story and they probably deserved it. No one deserved to get gets no one deserves to get pulled over for a broken taillight and shot and killed in front of their girlfriend and their, their child in the car. Nobody deserves that. 
certainly when, from what I understand, they were complying with everything that the law officer said. You know, a video just came out this morning, a guy laying on his back in Miami in the middle of the street trying to comply with the police as he was trying to settle down an autistic patient of his gets shot in the leg. Again, yeah, we didn't see the whole video, but this guy is lying on his back with his hands in the air when he's shot. There, there's there's nothing you can tell me that, that makes that right. We've got way too many people trying to tell me it's right, and uh, it's not. And uh, and that's, you know, that's, again, why I agreed to, to be on the podcast today because, you know, I can't continue to sit idly by and, and not say anything with uh, with these blatant injustices. With all that being said, Kenny, how how worried are you when you're out and about of a possible confrontation with with police? Man, uh, I can let me tell you a brief story and tell you just how crazy this is. About a month ago, I took my sister uh, to the uh, to the doctor. Now, um, this particular doctor is in Bethesda, Maryland. Bethesda, Maryland is in Montgomery County here. Uh, right outside Washington, a very affluent area um, in, in the D.C. area. And um, it was very early in the morning. I think it was like 7 o'clock in the morning. And um, when I dropped her off and I told her, I was like, you know, um, is that I'm about to go get me uh, some coffee. I saw there was a Starbucks not, not far from me on my GPS. And I hadn't had my coffee yet. And I'm going to drop it off. I'll be right back. I'm going to get some coffee. And I'll be right back. So I went to this uh, Starbucks, got some coffee. And as I'm going back to my car, I noticed that there was a car right next to them. Um, it wasn't necessarily right next to my, like maybe a space over, but there was nobody in that space. But this woman was slumped over in her seat, music black, like this blasting. And she had looked like she had just kind of come into the space. And I don't know what happened, but she was taking up like almost like three spaces at once. And again, window down, music blasting, but she like she's completely out of it, plumped all the way over to like almost like the passenger uh, side of her car. And I walk by and I'm like, man, this lady like she's dead. And I said, excuse me, miss, I, you know, excuse me, miss you. I said it twice, and just nothing. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, damn, this woman right might really need some help. But I also thought, like, well. Black dude, I'm in Bethesda, white woman, you know, I can't just walk up to her car and, like, really, like, just, you know, maybe touch her or anything like that because who knows she wakes up. Black dude, you know, I maybe just kind of nudge her a little bit. You know, I'm assaulting her or something like that. Who never knows, you know, like, who knows what she may think. So I'm like, okay, I got to get somebody else to walk up to this woman's car to make sure that she's okay. So there was another white woman that was coming out of the store, and I'm again I'm hesitant to even walk up to her. So I walked up to her as, you know, just as peacefully as I could. Excuse me, miss. She turned around and almost jumped out of her skin. Oh, oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my! Oh, oh, oh! I scared the shit out of her just by saying, "Excuse me, miss." She turned around and saw who it was, and she was, "Oh my god! I'm so sorry! I'm so sorry! You just scared me! I'm so sorry!" You know, I'm like, you know, it's fine. I know why I scared you just because I'm black. It's fine. But there are bigger things we need to tend to right now. Um, <laughs> this woman right here, I'm not quite sure what's going on with the. I mean, I came out, you know, I see how the way that she parked. 
um, you know, I try to say something to her, but I don't know. She made me help. Like, you know, that's just me just being who I am. Like I was raised, like you see somebody who made me help you help them. But again, I'm just aware of how this whole thing could be perceived if I go about this the wrong way. So she saw what was going on. She walked over, you know, she gave her two, excuse me, miss me, the lady still not say something. So she went and actually touched her, went inside the car, touched her and kind of nudged her shoulder a little bit. And then that's when the woman kind of like started moving a little bit. Then she, you know, got up, looked around. She looked completely disoriented. Um, and then she, you know, the lady was like, Miss, are you okay? Do you need help? And the lady was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I'm just so tired. I just came, I parked, I guess I just passed off and just how tired I am. She likes you maybe drinking a little bit, but right. you know, she was like, you know, thank you so much. And you know, I'm fine. So I thanked the lady and I, you know, Miss, are you okay? And I got my, my car and I drove off, but Again, Adam, you could have felt completely comfortable just walking to that lady, you know, maybe knocking on a window, knocking on the top of the car, maybe nudging a little bit. Hey, miss, excuse me, maybe, you know, doing whatever mm-hmm. to make sure that she's okay, that she needs immediate help. But again, I'm cognizant of where, I, of where I am. You know, I'm 240 pounds. You know, who knows how this can be perceived? So, again, you're always cognizant of things like that when you're black. Like, how me just doing something as innocent as making, as making sure that somebody is okay could potentially turn into a situation where somebody either called the police, he was assaulting me, I woke up, he was touching me, blah, 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 you know? Always on your mind. Yeah, always, always. You have to be. You have to be. Will, what, do you, what kind of discussions are you having with your, your son about what's going on in this country and just, and just growing up as... as you know, a, a mixed race child. Yeah, it, it is tough. You know, he's again, as I mentioned early in the conversation, he's nine years old, very much impressionable still, you know, and there, there's even stories of, of racism with him. I, I mean, just, uh, just, uh, a few months ago, you know, he, he was telling me how he had a crush on a little girl. Um, you know, and turns out the little girl was black and, you know, one of his other little white friends said, you're, you're not allowed to like her. You can't, you can't like her. She's black, you know, and these are, these are nine year old kids in elementary school in third grade. And I've got, you know, another little white kid telling my son, he can't like a girl because she's black, you know? And, um, I mean, it's, it, it just goes back to to what I said previously. It's, it really makes the, the future look bleak. I mean, clearly someone is teaching that kid that it's not okay to like black people at nine years old. You know, that's a that's a learned behavior. It's ignorance at its finest. You know, and, and, and in terms of how I try and convey that and explain that to my son is, you know, we, we treat everybody equally. Um, I, I can't say that we've had a lot of in-depth, you know, race conversations. Um, you know, I, I really try and stay on the side of what's right is right, what's wrong is wrong. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have some of my family here in Charlotte, North Carolina with me that, you know, that I grew up with as, as brothers and sisters, um, that are, are black, you know, a lot darker than me. (laughs) As you mentioned, I I sometimes could be mistaken, um, or overlooked, you know, um, as a black person, because I don't, I don't fit that, that description. I'm, I'm not necessarily dark enough. Um, you know, I keep my head, my head shaved close. I've done that since high school. And now, of course, I'm balding, so it's even more of a <laughs> a necessity to keep it shaved. But uh, you know, I'm fortunate to have some family here that 
that Liam gets to grow up with and kind of just be around and, and see different people um, that look different than him, you know, um, and, and that's important. I think it's it's extremely important to expose our, our younger generation to different people, um, different practices, just as many experiences as possible to, to broaden their horizons, broaden their thought processes, um, you know, and prepare them for the future. So um, not a lot of in-depth race conversations with him at nine, but uh, but certainly, you know, trying to take advantage of the opportunities when they arise to point out that, you know, we we don't care if somebody's black, yellow, purple, blue, um, you know, that that has no bearing on how they treat you or, or how you treat them. And uh, unfortunately, not, not everyone is, is seizing those opportunities with their kids, as I pointed out, and, uh, and it, it's frustrating and disheartening. Well, look, I know he's he's playing basketball right now, which is a good segue to get me to the conversation of basketball in general, because this is a basketball podcast, and, and basketball is important because, to me, I think it did probably more to open my eyes about race relations and talking about race and actually being in, in environments in which race didn't matter. And I know we talk about that in general terms all the time where, you know, oh, you know, and you usually hear that from from people that are white, like, oh, well, we really just it's one race. And it's like, OK, well, then stop treating people differently then based upon how they look. And then then people can all agree that it's that it's it's one race, the human race. I mean, when it comes to basketball and it comes to locker rooms or it comes to pickup ball or being on a team. Yes, there are always, always going to be incidents where there's some racial tension and stuff, but something about a team atmosphere and something about basketball in particular, in terms of, you know, it can be played anywhere, you know, just even getting a pickup game at the park requires everybody to sort of come together in a, in a weird way. And I know you guys both played high school basketball. Obviously, Kenny, you come from, from a powerhouse in, in, in DeMatha there in, in Maryland, but, um, just your experience, and I'll go to you first, Kenny, in terms of what basketball's done and where you've noticed it's actually, we talk about all the bad things and how we can't bring, bring ourselves together, but I think in a lot of ways we've all experienced basketball as a way to actually do that. So, so Kenny, any examples you have or, or moments that you can recall in which, you know, basketball was actually a good bridge in terms of race relations? Yeah, it was a uh, great bridge. Um, we had a, a work league uh, when I was at USAT. And, um, you know, some of the guys on um, on my team, like we didn't have enough people in my particular department to, um, you know, put together a team. So we actually were one of the teams that was kind of like a hodgepodge of people from different departments. And I just remember just, you know, uh, just having, you know, lunch with those guys, you know, getting to know them a little bit and, um, just kind of kicking with them a little bit after the games, and um, just trying to, you know, just trying to develop some type of, you know, bond with your teammates. You know, I think just a team that just kind of knows each other and just um, relates well, plays together once they get out on the, on the court. And uh, I just remember the certain conversations I had with, you know, some of the guys that from different departments. Uh, you know, in in that environment, you know, most of the people they are journalists by nature, and I've come to find out that people who um, you do work in uh, journalism, you know, whether it be print, uh, digital, whatever it may be. Um, 
are more often than not the, uh, willing to have, you know, the type of conversations that we're talking about. They're willing to do it. Now, whether or not they're listening or, um, you know, retain the information or, or just doing it just to um, kind of give you the impression that they actually do care, but uh, they actually do um, uh, uh, kind of seek out those conversations sometimes. And uh, I just remember just having conversations about race with a lot of those guys. And, uh, you know, that's some, in, in some ways it was in a, in a joking manner sometimes, um, just about certain stereotypes and things like that. You know, um, you know, one of the guys on our team wasn't, you know, there was only three black guys on the team and one of the guys wasn't very good and just kind of joking about what happened to him. And, um, you know, one of our better players was a, was a white dude. He was like, you know, five eleven, hundred forty pounds soaking wet, but he could, he was he killing you know, and just kind of like, you know, where he grew up at and, you know, we show about his bloodlines and things like that. And just still those type of jokes, but it kind of opened us up to, you know, having again, just, you know, conversations about things that were going on at the time and uh, just racially, just, it just, it just kind of helped the conversation kind of get going. And, um, you know, that that's one thing I do remember that, you know, the game kind of bringing, you know, that hodgepodge people together. But, you know, I think, you know, some of us kind of walked away from that experience with, you know, just a bit, you know, a, a better just understanding of certain teammates and their experiences. So, well, how about for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree um, a lot with what Kenny said, obviously. Um, you know, having played three sports through high school and then uh, two in college before joining the Army, uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of similarities between, you know, and, and often we hear them, hear them in narratives, but there, there's a lot of similarities in sports and team sports um, and relating it to, to battle, to, to war. Um, primarily you hear it in football more so than maybe basketball um, because maybe it's a lot more physical. But I, I think there's something, um, you know, about that team chemistry, you know, bleeding and sweating, um, together that, that forms a bond, you know, far greater than you're going to get, you know, being on the same, uh, working on the same team for, for a science project, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. yeah, sports, I think has always had that, uh, you know, had that unique ability to, uh, to bring people together. We've seen it throughout history. It, it, it's, it's very unique in that, that sense. And I'm fortunate enough to, uh, have made a lot of great lifelong friends, not only through sports, um, but in the army guys that, you know, I probably wouldn't have gotten to know otherwise, guys that I probably wouldn't have taken the time to try and know otherwise, um, that we were all just kind of thrown together on a on a particular team and, you know, through trials and tribulations, you know, over the course of a season or over the course of our high school careers, um, we formed those bonds that to this day, you know, um, are lifelong and lasting. So, yeah, I think sports and uh, and basketball, like you said, have that unique ability to bring people together of all colors, of all backgrounds, and, uh, you know, help us overcome some of those differences. And then on the professional level, you know, we all remember that, or at least we've seen it recently, if, if um, I mean, we, we weren't around when it first came out, obviously, but that 1967 photo when, you know, the iconic athletes got together and were opposing the Vietnam War, you know, with Muhammad Ali and you got Bill Russell and, and Jim Brown and, and Kareem uh, standing, you know, beside beside him. We don't see athletes as much 
or at least we don't think about athletes as much standing up for for their beliefs and obviously there's there's other things on the line for them in terms of endorsement deals and their public perception and their brand and all that but uh we've seen it recently i mean we've seen carmelo anthony and, and bradley beal speak out lebron has spoken out about what's going on social injustice and all um Kenny, what what kind of responsibility do professional athletes have in terms of speaking out about social injustice? Um, I don't like to heap responsibility on those who don't want it. Um, either you want it or you don't. You know, I was fortunate to go up here in, in the D.C. area and become a big fan of um, Georgetown basketball today. Till today, that's still my favorite team and will be till the day I die. Um, but, <laughs> you know, John Thompson was somebody who wanted that wreck. He didn't shy away from it. Um, John Taney was somebody who didn't uh, shy away from that wreck. He wanted it. I mean, he even threatened to kill John Tyler Perry. I mean, I go show how gangster he was. Um, but, again, he didn't shy away from it. Uh, some people shy away from it. They don't want it. I can't, you know, put that type of burden on people who don't want it. Um, however, it would be extremely powerful for – you know, people like LeBron, but people like, you know, I saw, you know, D-Wade and all those guys at SB's kind of stand up and talk about, you know, their responsibility and things that we need to do in our communities. But, you know, there's a difference between a movement and a moment. And it seems like right now, like we're kind of having a movement. And I, I think that all too often in the black community, we are prone to having moments where we just had this, you know, this period where we're upset and we want to protest and we'll do things mm-hmm. like that. But then we just kind of fall back into our everyday lives and we, you know, don't really grasp the moment and turn it into a movement. And one thing that a movement requires is sacrifice. You know, what are you willing to sacrifice to make sure that we get the things that we need to get in order to affect real change? And, you know, one thing that, you know, athletes can do is do what Muhammad Ali did and say, fuck it, I'm not going to Vietnam. I'm not fighting. I'm not doing shit until these things are changed. You know, one thing that, you know, Carmelo Anthony can do is someone that's been very outspoken about what's going on until there's real change, until policymakers, you know, put policies in place that will protect the rights of um, African-American men all over, you know, um, is don't participate in the Olympics. You don't have to go to Brazil. Mm -hmm. There's not a law that says that you have to participate. You can boycott what if every single African-American athlete on the men's basketball team just said, fuck it, we're not going? That will bring a lot of attention on the issues that are going on. Once you start hitting people's pockets, you hit NBC's pockets, you hit their sponsors' pockets, and all of a sudden they start feeling pressure from an economic standpoint to actually put pressure on those who can affect change, then you might see some change. But just standing up and, you know, you know, reciting some rehearsed speech and, at the SBs, I mean, okay, applause, all right, whatever. But again, the difference between a movement and a moment, sacrifice. What do you want to sacrifice? So we'll see what they wanted to sacrifice. But if not wanted to sacrifice anything, then it's talking shit. Yeah. John yeah. Thompson was willing to sacrifice being the coach of Georgetown. He walked out because he felt like, you know, blacks were being fairly treated in regards to standardized testing. He was willing to sacrifice. And he's like, no way. I'm going to make a stand. I'm walking out. That's the difference between a moment and a movement. And he was able to affect change. But again, if you're not willing to sacrifice anything, if you're not willing to sacrifice game checks, if you're not willing to sacrifice the first two weeks of the regular season just by sitting out in protest, then again, you're just talking. 
there are a lot of things that you can do. There are a lot of things that you can sacrifice. But it's all up. To, it's all in whether or not you're willing to do it or not. So we'll see. There's a level of safety, right? I mean, that's that's what you're talking about. And I don't, I don't mean safe in terms of your own health, but but your your pocketbook. I mean, right. You know that, that that's the difference, really. And the funny thing is, you talk about the boycott of Rio. That there's no contractual obligation there. It's it's none. I mean, look, your your endorsement deal that they're they might be upset, but there's you know Adidas is still going to pay you, Nike's still going to pay you, and the mm-hmm. NBA team is still going to honor their contract. So yeah, I think got, we got guaranteed money, bro. Yeah. So yeah. exactly, fellas, I um, really can't thank you enough for for giving me the time and and the perspective, and I just think these conversations are important. I, I don't want this. You know, just to be the end of the con- certainly, I know with the both of you guys, this won't be the end of the last time we talk about this stuff. But mm-hmm. I just think for people out there listening, that hopefully, maybe there's something they heard today that oh, I, I didn't think about that, or I never thought that was something that other people went through or had to deal with, or you know how they looked at the world. And um, it it means a lot to me that both of you guys are willing to share your time and and your story. So thank you for hopping on today. No problem, anytime, man. Yes, sir. Absolutely, Ed. All right, fellas. So Kenny Williams, um, you can find him on Twitter at KBADS, K-B-A-D-D-S. Um, he's he's not going to follow you back, so don't expect that. <laughs> it's a given. I have two, and I, I explain this to people, I have like so many Twitter accounts and where I follow people and all that type of stuff like that. But this particular account I made for the podcast, and I didn't want to just keep you know following people that I'm already following on these other accounts. So that's why I do that. People ask me about it all the time. And I just, you know, again, this account is just for the things that I'm personally involved with. Um, and uh, I just want to keep the, you know, the follows uh, to a minimum. That's it. Because it becomes redundant that for a while. That's it. It's nothing yeah. personal. I, I Listen, <laughs> I, I, I totally understand. I'm not, I'm not pleading to get, to get the follow on there. I'm just saying that, uh, that people out there should not expect that it's, it's an automatic follow back situation, but I do want people to check out what Kenny's saying, uh, on his, his, uh, Twitter feed because it's always interesting. And then check out the, the Fia Starter podcast, F I Y A starter podcast. And then for Will Ray, um, well, um, you know, publicly, you can, find, I wanna... you can find me in Best Buy. You can find me in Best Buy slinging TVs, and I'll uh, I'll be in there selling you <laughs> that you can you can watch all those games on. So, uh, so come see me. Follow me at Best Buy. Yeah, support support all your local <laughs> your local Best Buys, and and publicly, I do want to say thank you for your service, Will. Uh, as an Army Ranger, eight month tour Definitely. tour in Iraq uh, during the uh, Iraq War, it, it, incredible uh, what you've what you've dealt with, and um, appreciate uh, your your time in the military there, Will. So for both of you guys, thank you very much, and uh, really appreciate you guys jumping on. All right, appreciate that. See you later, buddy. So that's it for this episode of the Great Point Podcast. Remember, you can always subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and uh, give us a good rating there. Five stars would not hurt. Really appreciate having Will Ray and Kenny Williams join me on the podcast. That'll do it for this episode, and we'll catch you next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.